you you sometimes get loud. I do. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Review Club. It has been a little while. We did not put out an episode over the holiday break. We had a whole bunch of stuff that ended up coming up. Matt and I were supposed to go spend Christmas at my parents and then go down to Orlando to do Disney World and Universal with our kids. And then what happened, Matt? Then my daughter had a girl in her class who had COVID. We should have instantly yanked her out of school, but we didn't. My daughter got COVID. She came home. She gave COVID to all of the rest of us. So all four members of my family had COVID. We had to cancel our trip home to Atlanta for Christmas, cancel our trip to Orlando, to Disney and Universal for the week after that. So we were not able to join you guys. And of course, even if we had not gotten COVID, then we probably, the flights would have been all crazy and we would have been worried about getting this new Omicron variant in Florida. The good thing is the whole trip was ruined for us before it started instead of being ruined halfway through, which could have been so much more of a nightmare. And then, as of today, I just about an hour ago took my own at-home COVID test since I was feeling a little bit off as the day was going by. And now I've got the Rona too. So I'm quarantined in my bedroom here. The rest of my family is so far negative. So that's good. I am trying not to infect them. I am so sorry to hear you have COVID too. It was extremely mild for us. My wife and I had the sniffles uh, for a couple of days and the kids were basically symptom-free the entire time. We are all four 10 days out from any symptoms at this point. So we are all free and clear. We were very, very lucky and it was very mild for us. And here is hoping it is the same for you. It's mainly like a cold at this point, some sniffles, but then also some muscle pain in my back and neck. My stomach is full of butterflies. Hopefully that's about all I get. Also an occasional cough here and there. We may have to edit those out as we go. But one way or the other, that's enough about that. So to get on to the subjects at hand, I don't know if you've seen Spider-Man No Way Home yet. Last time I heard you had not. No, I have not because I was supposed to go see it with my friend and then unfortunately his dad died. And so then he had to go take care of that. And then by the time... He had returned home from that very unfortunate situation. I had COVID. Meanwhile, one more uh, housekeeping note here. There is apparently a discrepancy in the internet's records about when Fantastic Four Annual Number 1 was published. In Marvel Unlimited, as well as on, what what is it, marvel.fandom.com or something like that, Mm -hmm. according to a couple of different sources, including the one that I'm going from, it came out in July of 1963. There are other sources that say it came out in September of 1963. And my source says it came out in October of 1963. So one way or the other, Matt didn't do his homework for this episode for that uh, issue. So we're going to go ahead and uh, give him a chance to make it up at a later date. (laughs) (laughs) How do you know I'm not right and you're not wrong? I say Fantastic Four Annual number, Number One didn't come out in July. So I feel perfectly content doing the July comics without Fantastic Four annual number one, which I love. I can't wait to do it, but I didn't do it yet. We can go ahead and split the difference and go ahead and do it with next month's comics. Next month doesn't have that many comics, does it? Well, then that, uh, would, be a, that would be a good opportunity to do this big, huge, you know, gargantuan Fantastic Four annual then. We would only be doing five comics in that month. And so we could maybe 
include it in there. We'll do it soon. Okay. So meanwhile, we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Matt argued for not doing Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos this month. I'm still kind of wanting to do it uh, as a rule, but we do have a lot of stuff to cover. Well, actually, I guess I was saying, oh yeah, sure, let's not do it when I thought we were going to be covering Fantastic Four Annual number one. One way or the other, we will we will go ahead and skip that this month. I still think it's quite important to the unspooling of Marvel history. I might still make some uh, interjections about it from time to time. Okay, let's go ahead and get right into Amazing Spider-Man number three. On the cover, it says America's most exciting superhero captured by the world's most dreaded supervillain. And we see from behind Dr. Octopus. He is saying, you are helpless, Spider-Man. I warned you that the power of Dr. Octopus is far greater than yours. Down at the bottom, it has a little panel that says a book-length super thriller. Spider-Man faces his most powerful foe, Dr. Octopus. Can anything that lives defeat the mighty Dr. Octopus? So if I'm not mistaken, this is the first full-length book Spider-Man story we've had. Yes, we had just the 15-page story in Amazing Fantasy number 15. And then we had the first two books of Spider-Man had two separate stories in them. So this is our first full-length story, giving us really, in some ways, the first great Spider-Man epic, the first great, big, satisfying hunk of a Spider-Man story instead of just the little bites we've been getting so far. And it is fantastic. Of course, we have seen a fantastic depiction of Dr. Octopus in some of the movies. The second Tobey Maguire movie is one of my favorite comic book films of all time. And it was largely due to Alfred Molina's portrayal of Dr. Octopus. It was just perfect. And this is the introduction of that character. I was talking to Matt before we started recording and saying that since I over-prepared last week, uh, or last episode, I should say, and took notes, you know, did all this stuff, this time I decided to compensate for that by under-preparing for this one. So I've I've read everything in the last month, but really take many notes. So yeah, we'll see if this works out any better this time. The strangest foe of all time, Spider-Man versus Doc Octopus. We begin with Spider-Man stops some people who are stealing a safe and he thinks, Ah, it's almost too easy. I've run out of enemies who can give me any real opposition. I'm too powerful for any foe. I almost wish for an opponent who'd give me a run for my money. We then cut to an atomic research center where we've got Dr. Otto Octavius. Dr. Octopus right away just doesn't look like any other villain. He is just an extremely unique and fascinating looking villain. He's Roy Orbison. <laughs> he did sort of like Roy Orbison. This was also true of the Vulture last issue. He didn't look like any other villain we'd seen before, but that is even more true of Dr. Octopus. He's got these arms he controls with his hands uh, that are for metal arms he uses to do experiments, which is a believable enough way of setting up these arms. And hey, it's good to see somebody in the Marvel Universe being careful about radioactivity. <laughs> but there is an explosion, and we get an absolutely gorgeous panel on the top of page four where you just yeah. get an all red and black panel. But the warning, alas, is given too late and before the alarm can be sounded and we see this huge explosion, we then see Dr. Octopus wake up in hospital but realizes there's bars on his window, but then he seemingly breaks out, but he actually stays in the hospital. We then cut to J.J. Jameson, who is, for the first time, the publisher of the Daily Bugle. He was running a magazine in the previous issue, but now he is running a newspaper, the Daily Bugle. He sends Peter Parker in to get some photographs of Dr. Octopus in the hospital. We see Spider-Man go to the hospital where Dr. Octopus is, of course, this being a Ditko comic, doing a scientific experiment with a Bunsen burner and an Erlenmeyer flask while he is holding a doctor and nurses hostage. Spider-Man comes in. (laughs) He webs up 
two of Dr. Octopus's arms together. And Dr. Octopus infamously says, and now, Superman, I grow bored with this game. My time is too valuable. Silly. And, and, and they did not fix that in this version here. Uh, <laughs> oh, on Marvel Unlimited, it still says Superman. I think it's a, such a famous panel that it would actually, what's, where, where is it? I, I'm pretty sure I, it is. Which page and panel? Bottom of page eight. Yes. And now, super hyphen man, I grow bored with this game. Yep, but they left it I, in. It's always a throw for me. When I was growing up, before I ever got to read any 60s comics, I did not own them as a kid, but I did own a copy of the Marvel No Prize book, which reprinted oh, yeah. the biggest mistake panels from the Stan and Jack era, Stan and Jack and Steve era, and including this panel. And it's always a thrill for me whenever I actually encounter one of those panels in the wild. When later when we get to Avengers, I remember the first time I got to the issue where we see the A on Captain America's chest. And I'm like, ah, oh, I knew that from the No Prize book. Yes. Or the one where the living laser destroys Cap's shield and then Cap has his shield again in the next page. <laughs> Dr. Octopus throws Spider-Man out the window, doesn't chase after him, says, you're no well, threat to me. Well, I, I just want to say at the top of page nine, top right panel, uh, I just love that where Dr. Octopus is holding all four of Spider-Man's limbs immobile while he then just uses one of his actual hands just to slap him, you know, yes. just just to show the ultimate contempt and disrespect. Uh, it's just a very emotive panel. It is awesome. So then Spider-Man then just slip, sl slunks. Is that the word I'm looking for? Slinks. Slinks. Spider-Man slinks away, feeling totally defeated. Dr. Octopus decides to leave the hospital and go to another atomic research center where he takes over, starts doing atomic research again. Absolutely gorgeous panels of Dr. Octopus underlit. That's always my favorite Ditko is underlit Ditko where people are lit from beneath. They're like, what are we going to do about this? Peter Parker gets a call from J.J. Jameson saying, hey, now go take more pictures of him. And Spider-Man says, no, I can't do it. I'm totally defeated. I'm a total loser. He goes to school. And who is speaking to his school but Johnny Storm, the Human Torch, who has been called in to defeat Dr. Octopus but can't flame on because his flame is exhausted for several days. And so he just has enough flame to go to the school and make presentations where he creates a flaming two plus two equals three in the air. This is what usually happens when the thing helps me with my homework. I get results like this, two plus two equals three. But then he gives a little speech and he says, now for a parting thought, stick to your schoolwork and do your best in your studies. Don't be discouraged if it sometimes seems tough. The important thing is never give up. Remember that, never give up. So then Spider-Man is totally inspired. Spider-Man, who had sort of a fraught relationship with Human Torch when they hung out in Human Torch's annual recently, here is inspired by the Human Torch. He decides he's going to go defeat Dr. Octopus. He goes into the Nuclear Research Center. Another absolutely gorgeous panel at the top of page 15 of Dr. Octopus, lit from beneath, working all of the panels on the thing. He is fighting Spider-Man. Now, you would think Spider-Man would have known exactly what he was getting into and would have brought some sort of chemical solution with him as he did some sort of science, super science solution with him as he did when he fought the Vulture last issue. In this case, it doesn't occur to him to do it until he's already there. But of course, they're in a nuclear research center. It has a chemical laboratory. He goes ahead and mixes up some chemicals, comes up with a solution, goes back to fight Dr. Octopus, throws the chemical solution at Dr. Octopus, and it fuses his arms together. So the solution is the solution. The solution is the solution. Solution, solution. And then Spider-Man, not for the last time, sprays some webbing onto Dr. Octopus's perpetual Roy Orbison sunglasses. It would be many years later before Dr. Octopus finally learned to put a little treatment on his sunglasses that would keep webbing from sticking to them. Spider-Man then beats the crap out of him, beats him up, knocks him out. 
leaves him tied up with a little, <laughs> looks like a little spider sign hung from his neck. Spider-Man leaves. Yeah, uh, I noticed that. <laughs> a little spider card. A little spider calling card hung from his neck. Yeah, a little greeting card, a little Christmas card looking little thing. We then cut to the Human Torch in his hotel room being told by a doctor, you're fine to fly him on again. Go fight Dr. Octopus. But then Spider-Man stops by and says, I defeated Dr. Octopus and I want to thank you. It's all thanks to you, Human Torch. And Human Torch is like, what do you mean? Flame and fireballs. I don't get it. What did I do? And uh, he doesn't know he gave this inspiring speech to Peter Parker. We cut back to the school where Human Torch is flying around demonstrating for the kids again. Flash Thompson is, of course, needling Peter Parker. And Peter Parker is giving back as good as he gets. Yeah. One of the things I notice about this is art-wise, this is reminding me a fair amount of Frank Miller's work in the 80s. It is. Yes. And I'm I'm thinking specifically of there was a Spider-Man annual that Frank Miller drew that featured Dr. Octopus. And it really looks like Frank went back to this issue and looked at how the arms were depicted and use that. But then there's a lot of stuff where you can look at Frank Miller's work and see like, oh, yeah, I can really see where the Steve Ditko influence is. And this is one issue where I can really see a lot of the roots of some of Frank Miller's later techniques. I don't think one normally thinks of Ditko and Miller as being similar, but I, one word I would definitely associate with both of them is noir. They both have big elements of film noir in their work. And of course, film noir was sort of inspired by German expressionism, and they both have elements of German expressionism in their work. They both love showing people lit from beneath, and they both love drawing New York City cityscapes. There are no New York City cityscapes in this issue, but we are going to see another Dicko issue this month in which there are a lot of them. And they both love drawing alleyways. Frank Miller can also sometimes have some really unconventionally awkward looking figure drawing that I see as reminiscent of Steve Ditko. It's like these kind of figures where it's like that should just look amateurish, but in the hands of this artist, it doesn't. Yeah. So that's, I guess, another thing that I've seen going through this issue. I was like, oh, yeah, I could totally see Frank Miller drawing this particular drawing of Spider-Man or Dr. Octopus with this weird, you know, limb placement and stuff like that. This is an epic story by Leon Dicko, uh, depending on who you want to give credit for the plotting, it is so good to see a full-length story that introduces a character for the ages, a character who, it sounded like you were trying not to spoil me and mention that Alfred Molina's Dr. Octopus returns in the new Spider-Man movie, but Spoiler I'm well alert. aware. Spoiler alert. <laughs> it's in the trailers. It's in all the TV commercials. I, I, I try to avoid all trailers and TV commercials for Marvel movies, but I could not avoid that one. We recently saw something in the theater that had a Spider-Man trailer before it. So I am fully spoiled. An immortal character given an absolutely epic and beautiful introduction. So we'll sort of hit and miss on whether or not Marvel Unlimited has the letters page. It does have the letters page in this issue. And I want to point out one letter on the second page of letters. From Phil uh, Liebfried, and he says, Dear Stan and Steve, well, let's see, let me just go ahead and skip forward to the interesting part. Here's the Spider-Man's running 50 years of his own comic. And the response from the editors is, only 50? Yes. As much as we are looking back at this at the beginning of something momentous, Marvel was not exactly exactly doing very well at this point. And this was a three-issue-old series. And so, yeah, that seemed like that was a little much there. But as it is, no, it is way past 50 years at this point and going strong. Yeah, I guess this is the 
60th anniversary of the character this year. It's amazing to read these old comics and have them occasionally go like, hey, fans, this is a collector's issue. This is going to be an important issue for you to hand down to your kids someday. And I'm like, this is all true. Like, they literally can't exaggerate about how important each of these issues is or how valuable they will someday be. And they thought they were exaggerating. They fully believed that they were exaggerating and they weren't. That is kind of mind blowing. Oh, also, one thing we should have talked about in the introduction is we got a message on the blog post from our listener in Moscow. Yes. <laughs> so he was very gracious. He started out by being a fan of Matt's writing on writing. Uh, he does what? Theater work, I believe, in Moscow. Is that correct? Yes, he's, he's it's sort of shut down because of COVID, but he was doing work in the theater. So hello, Ilya Katulin. Hello, Ilya. Hello. Thank you very much for letting yourself be heard. We uh, very much appreciate it. Yes. Okay. So, Fantastic Fantastic Four, Four, number 16. So, on the cover, once again, we've got the world's greatest comic magazine, Fantastic Four, number 16, July. Special surprise guest star, Ant-Man. And there's a giant magnifying glass so that you can see Ant-Man in there. The return of Doctor Doom, the world's most amazing supervillain. Visit the mysterious micro-world of Doctor Doom. And Dr. Doom appears to be giant holding the Fantastic Four in his hands. As we will find out, he is not giant. They are tiny. We get into the comic here, the micro world of Dr. Doom with special guest star, the amazing Ant-Man. They brag that it's going to be 22 full pages. One of these splash pages that doesn't actually have directly to do with the story, but is almost sort of like a movie poster for the story. So we start with Johnny Storm heading into the Baxter building, seeing all sorts of people, seeing his streaking form through the skies. And some some funny scenes with that. He gets into the Baxter building and nobody is there. And then he sees that they've been reduced to the size of toys and are about to be pulled into an air duct. So he goes ahead and welds the air duct shut. And shortly after that. I'm not sure is exactly what I would if I was being sucked toward an air duct. I'm not sure I would want to see it suddenly become molten slag before my eyes. But yes, welding is a whole different thing when Johnny Torch, Johnny Torch, when Johnny Storm does it. Johnny Human Torch. What's the name of the uh, toy manufacturer on the old Saturday Night Live sketch? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he refers to him as Johnny Human Torch. Invisible pedestrian. <laughs> <laughs> Bag of broken glass. The rest of the Fantastic Four all returns to original size, and they all start exchanging stories about how this has been happening to each one of them, but they were all afraid to mention it because everyone else would think that they were going nuts. But each of them have been having these moments where they shrink down at just the wrong moment and something happens and then they pop back up and they're like, man, did I imagine that? What's going on? I can't really say anything. So then they're figuring out, okay, something must be going on here. Meanwhile, I'll just point out that a couple of these different shots of Sue in these introductory pages are clearly Kirby swiping poses from some sort of girly magazines. Yeah. On page three, panel three, clearly it looks like that. And on page five, panel four, that looks like maybe not a girly magazine, but, you know, maybe a cheesecake pinup magazine sort yeah. of thing. They've all determined there must be something going on here. So they said, well, you know what? You know who's the expert in this stuff? Ant-Man. And they're like, I don't, but we, no one knows where to find him. So, of course, the ants overhear this. They communicate. Yeah. Reed says, you know, there's one person who might be able to figure out an explanation for all this, the astonishing Ant-Man. And Sue says, we haven't any idea how to contact him, Reed. We can't even be sure he really exists. We've already seen that both Ant-Man and Reed use unstable molecules and both call them unstable molecules. So... I think there had been sort of an assumption that like one of them had gotten this from the other, 
And then, of course, a couple issues ago, Reed used a shrinking gas. It had later been established that this was a shrinking gas he had gotten from Henry Pym. It has certainly seemed as if Ant-Man and Reed Richards had been in contact before this. But in this issue, it seems they have not. And in fact, they aren't even sure that Ant-Man really exists. And the only way they have in contacting him is luckily his ants. There happens to be an ant crawling around at Reed's feet to overhear this and relay everything back to the Ant-Man. Henry Pym gets the message. He then gets into his Ant-Man outfit and goes and gets the Wasp, his new partner. And we have a little note down at the bottom telling people to look at the previous issue of Tales to Astonish to learn more about the wonderful Wasp. So they shrink down. Ant-Man once again uses his... Well, I like calling it the antipult, but it really is more of a human cannon kind of thing. And uh, launches himself to the Baxter building. I guess he told Janet that she didn't need to come with him, right? Heaven forbid we have a Marvel comic that passes the Bechdel test. No, <laughs> Janet and Sue cannot meet. Just Hank comes. That's the only time we see the Wasp in this issue. But yes. so it's interesting when he shoots himself out of a cannon, we keep saying we're going to see the end of the antipult soon. And, and that keeps not happening. But I feel like at some point here, we're going to switch to Ant-Man generally getting around by riding on flying ants instead of getting around using the antipode. And so here we have this sort of transitory moment where he is fired out of his antipode and flies through the air. But then he lands on the backs of two flying ants who then carry him up into the Baxter building. And we've got this key transfer here that I think is soon going to just be like, hey, why didn't I just ride these flying ants the entire time? Right. Well, I mean, part of it is that flying ants aren't a very common thing. You know, I think all ants are born with wings, but almost every species of ants, they're chewed off in the anthill when they're babies. So I was always like, are there any ants that actually have their wings into adulthood? And I actually went and did some Googling. And yeah, there are some, but, you know, I'd almost every link I found was all like, dear God, do you have flying ants in your house? Arr, here's how to get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, that's a nightmare. <laughs> Let's go ahead and take care of those things. I'm sure Ant-Man's like, no. He shows up and they get some kind of magnifying box that they put over him that is able to make him look larger and amplify his voice so they can talk to each other. He gives them some size-changing fluid for them to have available in case they need to use it in the future because they're not sure why they're changing size at random times without really understanding. They have this now. We cut forward to the next day. The thing is helping Alicia move stuff around in her apartment. He's picking up a piano and a bench just, you know, with one hand each. And Reed comes barging in and he's like, hey, I've got something to help you turn back into Ben Grimm here. And he like literally grabs his head and shoves the test tube in his mouth with Ben actively protesting. <laughs> Reed literally shoves it down his throat, and <laughs> which turns him back into Ben Grimm, but he's still holding the piano. So Alicia does not have a piano anymore as of panel six on page nine. Thanks, Reed. He's saying, yeah, it probably won't last too long this time, but, you know, we're getting closer. They just hear in their heads, flee for your lives. Beware of Dr. Doom. He's trying to, oh, help. And uh, Alicia can hear it, too. Meanwhile, we see Johnny once again, you know, showing off to the other kids at his high school, toasting hot dogs for him and melting rocks, like melting big stones. Hey, that's just vandalism at that point like what is the deal and then we see sue playing around with perfumes because that's one of the things she likes to do because she's a girl and that's what well i mean she's doing something very valuable she's trying to find a perfume that will allow her to get past dogs without being able to smell her when she is invisible so she's doing something very important to do 
But then she says, well, it doesn't work. And she says, well, I'll just have to keep trying. I love playing with all these perfumes anyway. So yes, yes. she, uh, that, that's she's what I was referring valuable. to there. But yeah, she, she is trying to disguise herself from having her weakness being dogs. As Jack Handy says, isn't it a shame when a family is torn apart by something as simple as wild dogs? It, it is really, I mean, that's, that's, that is a shame. What so, did, uh, we saw don't look up, which we absolutely loved. And don't look up begins with a Jack Handy quote. That is absolutely hilarious. <laughs> well, it's, directed by Adam McKay, right? Right. And they were both from, they both started from Saturday Night Live. They once again hear another voice in their heads. So they figure, oh, okay, let's go ahead and take this shrinking serum ourselves because we're all being talked to in this thing. And maybe we just need to shrink down on purpose and see what we can figure out. So they apparently misdose themselves with the shrinking stuff. They're shrinking too fast. And so then now, they've got I to think use they do this on purpose because they say some mysterious girl has been warning us of Dr. Doom. And they say the last we saw of Dr. Doom, he was shrinking into nothingness. And so it seems like they go to the same. Now, this is my big question with this issue. It seems like they go to the exact same spot in their headquarters where Dr. Doom shrunk down into nothingness. Because they say, last we saw Dr. Doom, he was shrinking into nothingness. Well, we're going after him. I've portioned the Ant-Man's formula into four units, so let's go. I mean, yeah, they do say we're shrinking too fast. Quick, take the origin formula to slow it down. Gotcha, boss man. But they know they're supposed to shrink down just as much as Dr. Doom shrunk down. They figured out that somehow Dr. Doom, in shrinking to nothingness, ended up someplace. And that they've got to also shrink down into nothingness in order to get to wherever Dr. Doom went. Now, my big question with this issue, and every time we go to the microverse, is does every molecule in our universe have a hidden universe inside of it? Or can you shrink down anywhere and go to the same hidden universe? If you're in Hong Kong and you shrink down, are you going to end up in the same throne room of this microverse, or does it matter where you shrink down? Okay, we're going to get really uh, obscure here, but I believe that in the Micronauts comics that were done by Peter B. Gillis towards yeah. the end of the Micronauts Oh, run, Peter B. Gillis did do a later, yes, yeah. he did do a later yeah. Micronauts And there, comic. he established that the Micronauts are actually not micro-sized from us, that they are just in another part of the universe, and that somehow shrinking down to atomic size somehow access is some kind of wormhole that takes you to their part of the universe. Yes. Yeah. Now, granted, that's retconning from 25 years later. You know, if you're looking for an, for an answer, there is one. Yes. So, so I'm wondering if Baron Carza or Belladonna or anyone else is somewhere else in this world right now. If maybe Baron Carza got the idea for his look by the memory of Dr. Doom having ruled here for a little while. Right. They shrink down and they are in Doom's throne room in this micro world that he has taken over. And it seems that he's got some controls that can stop the Fantastic Four from doing much. So then he tells the story of how he ended up here. Uh, well, he shrinks them down again. So they've already shrunk down into nothingness into a little tiny uh, right. microscopic world. But then he shrinks them further down even within this world. So now they are tiny in this world. Right, so then they're like doll-sized in the micro world. Dr. Doom then goes through how he shrunk down, how he found this place, sort of wormed his way into the royal family's good graces, became sort of an evil vizier, and ended up being able to take over once he had amassed enough power. And now he was going to try to do the same to our world. 
Well, the Fantastic Four, of course, are having none of that. They attack some of the guards. Even though they're small, they're still able to overpower them. Except for Sue, she tries to go and play around with the uh, control panel that Doom has. And he's like, yeah, not so fast, and gets her caught in a cup like a spider. Once again, going back to the idea that you pointed out that early on in the series, in the first you know, 10 issues or so, she really does have a lot more agency then she generally gets a reputation for from this point on. Yeah. That she ends up being the hostage, the uh, fifth wheel. See, I did it right <laughs> exactly. second, which is different from what they got earlier. But then in this issue, she ends up acquitting herself very well. Yes, but I'm just saying that between this and the whole like perfume thing, it just sort of seems to be playing into that trope that she is accused of or that Stan Lee is accused of in the, in the coming years. But I never have a problem with it when female characters are shown as enjoying female coded things like perfume i'm not offended when johnny likes race cars and i'm not offended when sue likes perfume i feel like it's sort of this thing people do these days of oh you know it's stereotypical for this sort of character to like this sort of thing and women characters shouldn't like fashion or perfume or or anything like that one thing that reminds me of though is have you ever heard mom uh, our mom talk about the Muppet Show and one of her issues along those lines. No, what was that? Although she loves the Muppet Show, she we grew up watching the Muppet Show with the family. She did say that one problem she had with it is that a large proportion of the jokes in the show was all of the male characters making fun of Ms. Piggy because she's a girl who likes girl things. Right. You know, mom was always like, yeah, that that's kind of gross. she's one of the few girls on the show and yeah she's gonna have some different interests than all these male characters so uh it turns out that the fantastic four and the royal family uh, after being put to sleep with some sleeping gas are now all being held in a prison that is under an acid sea so it's acid that then has acid breathing monster fish in it that seems pretty horrifying and it's it's really gorgeous design just a very clever thing to just you know have them be at the bottom of a sea of acid shrunk down so a tiny shrunk down prison under a sea of acid and it's just really gorgeous looking. The acid breathing fish are gorgeous looking. One problem with this story is that they've already sort of done it in Strange Tales, where Johnny also went to an alien realm where there was a princess who was into him. And he led a revolution to restore her to the throne. This is a better story than that one. And it's great to have this story. But it was a shame it sort of had its thunder stolen by that earlier issue of Strange Tales. Although, once again, Johnny and the princess hit it off a little bit. Although, I think last time, I don't think Johnny's hormones had entirely kicked in at that point. He was like, uh, um, hey, uh, no, I'm feeling... Whereas this time, he's like, hey, baby, and he's, you know, leaning in to kiss her well, hand. No, it's, and- it's very similar. At the end here, jumping ahead, she says, you, you are the most fascinating man I've ever met. Must you go too? Perhaps if you remained here. And he says, I can't leave my pards, Perla. But maybe someday I'll be back. Yeah. It's like, hey, yeah, no hard feelings, baby. I, uh, th- this is just casual. I thought we understood that. So it turns out that Doom has enlisted the help of this other world in the micro universe called Tok, T-O-K. They are now going to come and enslave the Fantastic Four so that they will be out of Doom's way to rule this planet. And we get some really nice images of 
how they will be used when they're enslaved by this other race. Reed being used as a suspension bridge, Thing acting as essentially a one-man mining operation, Human Torch is shooting fireballs, and then this really degrading image <laughs> yeah. of Sue as a scullery maid with just her hair in a complete mop of a mess and her uniform is all sort of wrinkled and sagging and she just looks miserable <laughs> it's really evocative so anyway these are the plans they have for them so then meanwhile ant-man arrives at the fantastic four's lab and he says huh okay well here's some evidence they might have shrunk down here so let me go ahead and shrink down and try to meet them he does so. He ends up in the same world. Guards try to beat him up. Actually, I guess they do, and they take him to Dr. Doom. And he says, okay, fine, we'll give you to the Lizard Man of Talk as well. And then the Fantastic Four comes up with a way to get out of the acid well, sea. Yes. Specifically, Sue does. Reed, the world's smartest man, right. can't figure it out. But then she says, Reed, I, I have an idea. These walls can resist the acid or else it would have burned through them already. And then she figures out to go ahead and make a little submarine out of the acid-resistant walls which is great of her. And then as soon as they get to where Doom has Ant-Man tied up, she sneaks over there. She unties Ant-Man. She gets them all to the enlarging ray. And then Doom is going to pull out his gun and shoot them all. And she grabs the gun out of Doom's hand when she's invisible and then takes the gun and while still invisible, starts shooting at Doom and Doom <laughs> runs for it. And she defeats Doom single-handedly. He runs away and goes off and... Uh, enlarge his back to the surface world. So sure. it is an all Sue finale here. She comes up with the clever idea. She comes up with the clever escape and then she defeats the villain single-handedly. And uh, it is great to see. Very good point. That's not dissimilar from Doom's first appearance where she is tied up as a prisoner but ends up still with her hands tied behind her back sabotaging his control panel and blowing him up but good. Yeah, Sue can hold her own against Dr. Doom more times than once. Yes. So, uh, so then at this point, they have defeated Doom and he's going to expand and then just run away from the Baxter building because he realizes he's not in good shape to go ahead and take them on now. And then the Fantastic Four goes ahead and goes back. Uh, but Doom has left by the time they get there, presumably, although we don't actually see that. Yes. And then we get the scene we described before with right. Perla and Johnny. But then we have something we've never had before. They explicitly say this villain will return next issue. This has happened before. Doom was in issue five and then returned for issue six. But that seemed to be an impromptu type thing last time. This is the first time ever in a Marvel comic they've said, we're going to have part two of this issue next issue. I thought this was a great story. I'm always a fan of anything where the heroes lead a revolution in an alien land. That's always one of my favorite story tropes. It's something which is good because we got a lot of it in these Lee and Kirby <laughs> issues. I always love it, especially when, and it's not the only time we'll see it this month. We're going to see it again in Iron Man this month, another Lee Kirby story. I'm a big fan of this. This is not the last time we will return to this world. We'll see Johnny and Perla get reunited. We will see eventually they will get a big villain from the microverse, uh, the Psycho Man, who will show up before Lee and Kirby are done. And this issue will echo through the ages. But I am a big fan of this issue. Whether you want to give credit to Lyra Kirby, just big imagination, gorgeous visuals, really strange undersea, under acid prison, just gorgeous. Complete with, complete with miniature fish that live in the acid sea. Yes. Just really imaginative. Um, so I guess we were going to move on next to Journey into Mystery. Is that correct? On the cover, we've got... For the first time, they have a location that will show up a lot in Marvel Comics. Thor and Loki are at the United Nations, and we've got a nice uh, representation of the United Nations logo with Thor and Loki standing next to it. 
Thor is saying, any man who lifts his hand against Loki will have to battle Thor as well. And Loki is thinking, I've succeeded in making Thor think I'm his friend, but when he's served his purpose, he shall be my next victim. See, mighty Thor and evil Loki unite to battle the human race as the Marvel Comics group ushers in the Marvel Age of Comics. This is a very weak issue. I will sum it up very quickly. Well, I will point out that I believe this is the second appearance of the phrase, the Marvel Age of Comics. I think the first one was Strange Tales Annual number two. So this issue is potted by Stan Lee. It is scripted by R. Burns, Robert Bernstein. It has pencils and inks by Joe Sinant, which are okay. It seems a little rushed. You know, there's some nice art in here and some sort of sloppy art. We begin with there is a nuclear missile being launched and then it goes out of control. They call it Thor. Thor comes out to try to fix it. It turns out Loki is, of course, behind all this. He is, you know, we've had several issues now of Loki causing trouble for Thor, even though he's chained up in prison. This time he is like to give credit where credit is due in the Guardians. They are trying to chain him up well. He appears to be really well chained up. However, still not chained up well enough. And he is able to figure out that Thor will throw his hammer at this errant nuclear missile. The hammer will be coming back to him. He makes a illusion of a dragon appear behind Thor. And then Thor gets hit in the head with his own hammer. And Loki knows that means I timed the incident so perfectly that the hammer hit his chrosomatic gland, which determines and changes personality. So this is as my wife and I will always say whenever we say something that is scientifically dubious, science with the English majors. <laughs> According to science with the English majors, you can hit the chromosomatic gland and it will change your personality. So Thor suddenly turns evil because he got hit in the head with his own hammer. Yeah, he goes. I mean, that, that's just science. Just science. He goes to Asgard. He knocks out Heimdall. He goes to Loki, frees Loki. Everybody is there, including Odin and the other gods. And they're like, uh, Thor, what are you doing? Why are you freeing Loki? And Loki, Thor is like, I'm totally on Loki's side now. And then we get a beautiful panel. Of Odin just goes crazy and starts choking Loki. And it looks exactly <laughs> like Homer choking Bart in the <laughs> early seasons of The Simpsons. Right. I will say, as much as I am a fan of Joe Sinnott's pencils and inks, again, a very not fabulous crown on, on Odin again here. Yes, Joe Sinat just does not have Kirby's gift for magnificent Odin crowns, magnificent Odin outfits. And the big disappointment here is that nobody is speaking in any sort of lofty Old Testament language here. Odin just says, so you're up to your old tricks, eh, Loki? And you managed to dupe mighty Thor into joining to you. What is your scheming mind up to this time? Why have you bewitched Thor into thinking as you do? It's just so lame reading all these as guardians, <laughs> just talking as if they're a bunch of New York dudes. Really disappointing. Nobody is talking in any of these or those. Nobody is talking in any sort of lofty or elevated way. Well, I really don't think they started that too much until, you know, a couple of years in, right? I mean, I was going to say when Lee was scripting the book, but has Lee ever even scripted a single issue of Thor at this point? That's a good question. I don't think Lee has ever even written a word of dialogue for Thor at this point, but I feel like when Lieber was writing it, the dialogue, it just, something about this Arburn's dialogue just feels so pedestrian. I feel like the dialogue was a little loftier when Lieber was scripting it. Okay, good. But uh, anyway, <laughs> I just not a fan of Arburn's Asgardian dialogue. Loki says, until you give me control of Asgard, I will take Thor and we will wreck Midgard, which I know you are a fan of. Of course, that seems somewhat odd. Why not just wreck Asgard? But so then they go down to Earth <laughs> to wreck Earth. And I got to say, you get a lot of, in old comics, these let's wreck everything on Earth. But this may be the most epic let's wreck everything on Earth 
comic that's ever been done. You know, first they're causing waves to tip ships at sea. They're destroying dikes in Amsterdam. They're destroying volcanoes in the South Seas. They destroyed the Taj Mahal. They destroyed the Eiffel Tower. They destroyed the pyramids. They destroyed the Golden Gate Bridge. They destroyed the Panama Canal. They knock over the Leaning Tower of Pisa. But wait, they're not done. They make the Sphinx, you know, they've already destroyed the pyramids. And then they come back to Egypt later to make the Sphinx come alive and rampage through downtown Cairo. They destroy the Empire State Building. They make dinosaurs come back to life in museums. They are really going all out. <laughs> you know, again, Joe Sinnott. I'm, I'm assuming that Joe Sinnott is, you know, they were just like, oh, so they go to just wreck havoc around the world. He's like, wreck havoc around the world? Okay, then. And I think we have uh, Mr. Sinnott to thank for that. It, it really is quite impressive. And then they go to the United Nations. Thor destroys the emblem of the United Nations. Then suddenly... Another step in our continuing story of whether or not opening up trapdoors underneath flying characters makes them fall. A trapdoor opens up underneath Thor. He falls. His hammer stays up in the air. And well, then because suddenly... Because Thor can't fly. His because Thor can't fly. Can only fly. his hammer can. That's right. true. Yeah. So then his hammer suddenly falls down on him and knocks him good again. Loki's like, what is going on? Why did that happen? And then all of the leaders of the UN turn out to be the Asgardian gods in disguise. So here we see Odin on Earth for the first time, something that will rarely happen in the comics. He says, do you recognize us now? And Loki says, Odin and the gods of Asgard. Thor manages to hit Loki in the head with his hammer without then turning Loki good. Apparently not every hit to the head hits the chromosomatic gland. <laughs> they then take Loki and they just chain him back to the same wall, which is like, okay, clearly this isn't working, guys. You gotta, you gotta come up with some other way of imprisoning Loki. Then you get, again, folksy Odin saying, do not fret, my son, no matter how strong or how sly evil may be, there will always be a champion to challenge and defeat it. A champion such as mighty Thor, noblest of the gods, protector of mankind. I would say a genuinely lame Issue, Senat does enjoy showing all of the Earth's treasures being wrecked and goes gleefully over the top with that. Merely okay, Senate Art. I certainly miss Kirby, uh, who we had briefly back on the book last issue. Terrible dialogue. Just any story that involves getting hit on the head and suddenly turning good or evil. It's, <laughs> that's a hoary story. A hoary story cliche. I, it sounds weird to me to rhyme hoary and story there, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Well, I don't see what you have against science, Matt. <laughs> you know, Wait you a have... second. Let me knock my chromosomatic gland and see if I can change my personality here. Oh, yeah. okay. Now I'm feeling much better. Meanwhile, I will say we're talking about the dialogue here on the top of the final page. One of the Asgardians, not Odin, just say, I, Loki. It took us a while to figure it out. So they, they did use I for yes at some point. But yeah, we're, we're going to be developing the Shakespearean, biblical type speech patterns later. Yeah. Once Lee is finally taking over the dialogue writing of this book, which I guess come to think of it, he probably has not done at all yet, then he will go to town. He will have a lot of fun with it. I believe that we are not going to be doing Sergeant Fury and his Helen Commandos. I don't know. May, maybe I'll advocate to have an occasional all what's been going on with Sergeant Fury episode every here and there. <laughs> all Sergeant Fury uh, episodes, sure. Yes. Oops, all Fury episodes. So then we're going into Strange Tales. Strange Tales number 110, one of the most monumentous issues in Marvel history. <laughs> um, we're, we're starting to see the parts of the Frightful Four come together. Well, I'm not referring to that. <laughs> I'm, referring, <laughs> I'm referring to the backup story. Oh, but, yes. Um, <laughs> not so much the fact that we finally see the wizard and Pacepot Pete teamed up in the lead story. And indeed, if you're just looking at this book in the newsstands, you're like, oh, Strange Tales 110. 
are the flaming powers of the Human Torch strong enough to defeat both the wizard and Pastepot Pete? Your answer is probably uh, yes. He easily defeated them both separately, and he'll probably easily defeat them both together. There is no indication on this cover that you have the fantastic Doctor Strange. He's not even the only backup. You have a standard 13-page Human Torch story. Then you have another Larry Lieber backup story for five pages. And only then you get the legendary Lee Dicko, or I should say maybe Dicko Dicko, backup story of Doctor Strange in the final five pages uh, with no indication at all on the cover. And I almost missed it when I was going through this issue. I I was like, oh, whatever, Pace Puppy, Wizard. And then I usually just don't even look at the back of the book. And I'm like, oh, wait, this is Strange Tales 110. Right. And I discovered Doctor Strange. Oftentimes in Marvel Unlimited, if there is a backup story that was a reprint, they will just often skip that part of the book. So if you've got a main story that's 14 pages, and then the rest of the book was filled up with old reprinted stories from years ago. They just won't even put those pages in. Yeah. So I did not have the third story you're talking about in here. That must have been a reprint. Yeah, the second story. Right. So why don't you go ahead and do the Human Torch story and I'll do Doctor Strange. On the cover, after the caption, we've got some word balloons. Johnny is saying, my flame is dying out. Only enough left to burn through one section of mirror. And if I choose the wrong one, I'm done for. No explanation why that's true. Pacebot Pete is saying, this mirror prison was a great idea of yours, wizard. The torch will never get free. And the wizard is saying, and even if he does, Pete, you'll finish him off with your invincible pastebot. Excuse me. Mm. It's the Rona. It's the Rona. So we get into the story, and the first thing we see once again is one of these pages that's really more like a movie poster for the story rather than a part of the story itself. Neither Pastepot Pete nor the wizard look really on the model that Kirby created for them. Pastepot Pete does not look nearly as marvelously, magnificently ludicrous as he did when Kirby was drawing him. I I wouldn't say he looks fit for polite society, but he's a little less floppy. Yeah, did I say that? (laughs) <laughs> but I'm just saying that, you know, when Kirby was drawing Pastebot Pete, he just looked magnificently ridiculous. And here he just looked ridiculous. Yeah. Right. So, and so um, we should say that this is plot by Stanley, script by H. E. Huntley, who we met for the first time last month when he scripted Ant-Man and the Wasp, and penciling and inking by Dick Ayers here. Doing a good, nice job with this issue. Yeah, it lacks Kirby's Kirbiness, but it's a nicely penciled and inked issue by errors, I would say. The wizard does not look particularly unique either. He just looks like a dude with a crew cut. And a goatee. And a goatee, right, because that's um, how you know people are evil in the 60s. Yes. Um, See also Spock's beard. Okay, so it starts off with... Yes, We just watched that episode with my kids. We just watched Mirror Mirror with the kids, so I am very well acquainted with Spock's goatee. You know, it's Having funny, just I, it. I have never really watched much of the original series. I, I wasn't able to get into it when I was a kid. It just the, the production value is just not something I could get past. And I've tried watching it sometimes a little bit as an adult. And yeah, I've just I haven't really made the commitment. Um, so I haven't seen that. Now, granted, I've been into a lot of the later Star Trek stuff. And, you know, the Mirror Universe certainly played a hu- has played a huge role in Star Trek Discovery which we have very much enjoyed. Yes, I have never seen the episode, unfortunately. We see Johnny going through his exercises to make sure that he can use his powers as 
well as he can. Gotten a number of different views of this for over time, and we've got another one now. So he clearly puts a lot of work into this. He's not just someone who has powers and he just goes out and uses them. He hones them. He trains himself, keeps himself in shape. So then afterwards, he goes to his room and he's looking through his scrapbook of his former adventures and looks at his scrapbook stories about the wizard and about Pastepot Pete and gives the readers a recap of what happened and how Johnny defeated both of them. I'm sure that won't have anything to do with anything else that's happening today. That's just completely oh, of coincidental. Not. Yeah, no, of course not. So then we uh, cut to Pastepot Pete, who is scheming for his return to defeat Johnny Storm. And part of his plan is he wants to rescue the wizard from prison so that they can team up together and take him down. He goes to the prison, he uses his paste powers to break the wizard out, and the wizard has some of his own uh, like little incendiary bombs or something like that that he has made in prison that he employs as part of the escape. Then they make off, and then they are able to somehow get it into the press that the Human Torch is an enemy spy. Yeah, all off panel. Between panels three and four of page eight, there is, you know, an entire issue's worth of stuff that has gone on in terms of them doing some sort of elaborate plot to frame Johnny as an enemy spy. Johnny has already cleared his name as well by the time we get to panel number five. <laughs> and they're saying, you couldn't have done it. Why did you allow that story to get in the papers? And he says, because I think I know who's behind this and I want to smoke him out in the open. We've got a fast moving story here. Yes, a lot happens in the gutters on this one. So then he finds out that both Wizard and Pacebot Pete have busted out of jail and then someone frames him for a crime and he's like, hey, maybe it's those guys. What do you know? So then some of the kids at school still don't believe that he's not a spy. He overhears some of them talking uh, smack about him in the hallway. And he, he likes being popular, so this does not go over well with him. He sees a poster for the High School Dramatic Society's play. And so... So he says, I've got to prove I was framed by catching those two crooks. Think, Jenny, think. Hey, wait, that poster for the Dramatic Society. And then right. everybody is using the papers for their own ends here. Johnny places in the paper an article about Cyrus Cartwright, one of the world's richest men, will arrive in town today. So then Wizard and Baseball Pete go to grab Cyrus, and it turns out Cyrus is actually Johnny Storm, who has been trained by the Dramatic Society to dress up as a rich old man in order to catch Wizard and Baseball Pete. Ah, that was it. Okay, yeah. Um, I was like, what does the play have to do with anything? Right, he goes and learns how to act, once again, between... <laughs> yes. Between the panels. Uh, one thing I will point out is on the bottom of page nine, the wizard is using his air chair, which is a nice little callback to some of the stuff that we've seen of his in the past. Yes. Um, that was when, when he was like basically tech bro villain. That was one of the technology things that he had that was so cool in his house. So supposedly the human torch shows up, but it's actually the wizard using his torch apparatus. And then so the man they're coming to get turns out to be Johnny Storm, as you said. And so we're starting to get wizard and Pacebot Pete bickering with each other. And we've had this, you know, a little bit through this issue so far where the wizard being Mr. Genius is like, oh, I'm the leader of this duo. You know, clearly, go do this, go do that. And Pace Pop Pete's like, hey, we're a partnership here. You can't just tell me what to do. So we're getting a little bit more of that. And I, I can't imagine that's going to go wrong for them at any point. Yes, this is clearly comedy gold because they keep Wizard and Pace Pop Pete together from this point on. So we've now had 60 years of Wizard and Pace Pop Pete haplessly pursuing schemes together and bickering the whole time. So they they knew they had come up with something good when they put these characters together. And they are stuck to each other 
as if there was some sort of substance that can stick two things together. I can't even think of what that substance might be, but <laughs> they have been stuck together ever since. Yeah, if only if only the English language had a word to describe it. They use a blast of air to put him into this mirror trap that they've got. It seems relatively unremarkable as far as I can tell. It's, you know, hey, it's mirrors. Okay, so why is that a problem for Johnny Storm? I'm not entirely sure. Wizard and Pacebot Pete are still bickering with each other. The Torch is able to melt his way out of the mirror prison because why wouldn't he be? I'm not quite sure how that was supposed to work in the first place. So once again, they're still fighting with each other. They are trying to leave. Uh, Wizard says, I shall ignore that remark. Now to watch the end of the Torch from the other room. Come, Pete. And he says, quote, come, Pete. Bah, sounds like you're calling a dog. So, um, yeah, they're they're clearly annoying to each other, and that is going to make them a great partnership in the future. Then it turns out that the Torch had just created a flame mirage of himself that they think they've now defeated, and it turns out he's not that he's not actually there. He's in the room they've just escaped to, and he catches them, and there you go. End of story. Kind of a dumb story, but it does give us the first parts of the the frightful four who are a fun villain group that uh often is just played for laughs but occasionally can actually pull off some stuff yeah but we've got the first little bits of that here and some good chemistry yes the first half of the frightful four has been assembled they act like this is generally an issue where there's just nothing clever going on you know they act like at the end we've been duped that's not the torch it's a flaming facsimile but the torch has tried that trick so many times and it's just not interesting or exciting it's a very dull story okay art penciling and inking by airs kirby keeps coming and going from these books and always leaves a big hole when he goes again this is a merely merely okay story but it does make a significant contribution to the marvel universe in that pace pop pete and the wizard are stuck together like glue from this point on there you go that's the word you were looking for <laughs> glue or indeed paste in in indeed but the issue is not over. We then get a standard Stanley Larry Liebert story. After that, Larry Liebert, both script and art. And then you have a little text story tucked way in the back of the book. In the final five pages, we have Doctor Strange, Master of Black Magic. Whenever you talk about Marvel Comics in the 60s, so according to the story, it says story, Stanley, art, Steve Ditko. Then you have to go like, well, you know, either Lee or Ditko then later said that they did this by themselves. And Lee said, no, you didn't. Well, this is a rare case where even though the story is credited to Story Stanley, Art Steve Dicko, both Lee and Dicko were always very clear that Dicko did this story entirely by himself. That Dicko just came in one day with five pages he had done of Doctor Strange. He did this story entirely on his own. It was not Lee's idea. Lee did not propose this story to him. And that Dicko just created a, his own person. Now, Lee, he deserves no credit for putting his name as Story Stan Lee on the story when it is not, in fact, a story by him. And he also, this is one of the few times when we have him saying, admitting at the time that I did not write this story, but he does it in sort of a dickish way because <laughs> Dicko would later say in 2008, on my own, I brought into Lee a five-page pencil story with a page panel script. Now, when he says with a page panel script, what does he mean by that? Does he mean the, the dialogue? It's not clear. So I, I think what that means is oftentimes, especially when you're doing the so-called Marvel method, you will draw out the drawings and then sketch in your suggested dialogue, either between the panel gutters or with little, you know, sketched in word balloons that you understand will be tightened up, rewritten, you know, modified by the scripter. But that's part of what you 
send into the scripter. Yeah. So he says, on my own, I brought into Lee a five-page pencil story with a page panel script of my own of a new different kind of character for variety in Marvel Comics. My character wound up being named Doctor Strange because he would appear in Strange Tales. So that's Ditko, which is sort of a familiar claim of like, I did this on my own. It wasn't Lee. But then you have Lee. In 1963, he wrote a letter to a fan or I guess maybe a fanzine publisher. I'm not clear who Jerry Bales was, but he wrote a letter to a man named Jerry Bales in which he said, well, we have a new character in the works for Strange Tales, just a five-page filler named Doctor Strange. Steve Ditko is going to draw him. It has sort of a black magic theme. The first story is nothing great, but perhaps we can make something of him. Twas Steve's idea, and I figure we'd give it a chance. Although again, we had to rush the first one through too much. Little Sidelight originally decided to call him Mr. Strange, but thought the Mr. a bit too similar to Mr. Fantastic. Now, however, I remember we had a villain called Dr. Strange just recently in one of our mags. I hope it isn't too confusing. So here you have Lee actually in real time in 1963 saying, I did not create this character. It was Steve's idea. But he's like, and it sucks. <laughs> Which <laughs> he could not have been more wrong about. This is, I think, one of the all-time great Marvel Comics. This is one of the all-time great intro stories, and it is one of the all-time great examples of Dicko's art. I think that Dicko is doing an amazing job on Spider-Man. I think that he is turning in absolutely beautiful art every issue on Spider-Man. I think he's doing absolutely beautiful plotting every issue on Spider-Man to the degree we want to give him credit for the plotting. But I think that he finds his ultimate artistic expression in Doctor Strange, both in terms of the fantastic dimensions that Doctor Strange travels to, otherworldly dimensions, and also in his noir vision of New York City. We begin on this first page. First, we have Doctor Strange taking up the top panel. It says, men call him Doctor Strange. Never have you known his like. It is a great pleasure and privilege for the editors of Strange Tales to present quietly and without fanfare the first of a new series based upon a different kind of superhero, Doctor Strange, master of black magic. We have an absolutely gorgeous look for Doctor Strange right away on the front page. You can tell this was you can tell this was before the so-called satanic panic that you know you could have a superhero that specifically says yes he uses black magic and you know not just as and you know in a comics code approved thing and have that not be like no you absolutely know you can't do that right well the satanic panic hadn't happened yet exactly but the bottom three pages oh yeah we have it's a rainy night in New York we've got a man tossing and turning in bed he is tormented by bad dreams. He lights up a cigarette, meaning that his face is lit from beneath. These are just gorgeous panels. And once again, that last panel on this page that just really says Frank Miller to me. Um, yes. You know, once again, that's kind of where Frank Miller, I think, was drawing a lot of his influence from. So then the man says, I can't find alone. I need help. I heard a name spoken in whispers. Dr. Strange. He dabbles in black magic. Perhaps he can help me. So then he goes to Dr. Strange's house. We then see Wong, just very briefly, uh, colored in that very unfortunate way Asian people were colored. He is not named, but he is some uh, sort of... Funny. He is recolored to not look unfortunate in this version. Interesting. Good. We see some sort of Asian manservant allowing the man in the house. Uh, we see Dr. Strange's awesome-looking house already right away. We see an awesome-looking window on the door. He then goes to see Dr. Strange. Now, the interesting thing about Dr. Strange is that Dr. Strange has interesting eyes in that it seems like... Dicko is trying to give him somewhat Asiatic eyes, that he is giving him somewhat non-Caucasian eyes, even though he has Caucasian skin color and generally Caucasian features. Now, that sort of goes away. Eventually, he just has Caucasian-looking eyes. 
But it goes it goes away when Stan Lee writes the backstory of him being an American doctor. I guess so. I I mean I think the implication is he's American here, but he definitely has. So then I, I absolutely disagree. I think that it was Ditko's assumption that this was a Tibetan or otherwise Asian Himalayan person of that ethnicity from the very beginning, and that they later retconned him to, okay. be, to be of to be of European descent. It's unclear. So then the guy comes to Dr. Strange. He says, it's my dreams. Every night I have the same dream over and over. It's terrible. I can't stand it. Dr. Strange is like, tonight I shall visit you. I shall find the answer to your dream. Now go. But how? How will you do it? By entering your dream. So then the guy goes back to his apartment. And then Dr. Strange, meanwhile, sends his astral form, his metaphysical spirit to the other side of the world to a hidden temple somewhere in the remote vastness of Asia. He visits his mentor, who is clearly supposed to be Asian, but also has Caucasian skin tone, which sort of seems to be like a, you know, way of showing like, oh, he's Asian, but he's actually a somewhat human Asian. This isn't one of those inhuman, bizarrely <laughs> yellow colored Asians. So then he visits the ancient one. The ancient one says, I give you leave to go do this thing, but be careful. Make sure you have your magic amulet on you. Dr. Strange then goes back to New York, goes to this guy's house, tells the guy, okay, you go to sleep. I will sit cross-legged on the floor at the foot of your bed. And then I will enter your dreams, which he does. We see our first glimpse of Dicko's fantastic otherworldly dimensions. He visits the nightmare dimension. He asks a hooded figure in chains. Dr. Strange says, you, whoever, whatever you are, why do you torment him so? And the figure in chains says, he well knows the reason why. The nightmare gallops up on his horse. This will be a recurring Dr. Strange villain, the Lord of the Nightmare Universe. Now, unfortunately, Dr. Strange mutters in his metaphysical state. The guy wakes up and realizes that Dr. Strange is muttering to himself something about Mr. Krang. Now, this is not ideal scripting from Stan Lee. If Stan Lee indeed do the scripting, he's got two characters named Strange and Krang in the same book. Um, seems like a first thought, best thought sort of thing. Dr. Strange mutters about Mr. Krang. The chained up figure says, I am the symbol of evil, the evil that he has done. That is why I am chained. So if you do not believe, ask Mr. Krang. Strange mutters this in sleep. The guy wakes up. The guy then gets a gun. Awesome Ditko panel of the guy getting the gun. Points into Dr. Strange. It's going to kill Dr. Strange. Nightmare, you would think it's like, I want to get rid of Dr. Strange. I'll just not point out to Dr. Strange. He's about to be shot and killed in the real world. But no, Nightmare can't help but but point this out. and <laughs> says, behold, Dr. Strange, you may witness your own destruction. Your mortal body is unprotected. Its life is about to be snuffed out. Dr. Strange, instead of then just going into his mortal body and taking care of it, reaches out to the Ancient One. He has to reach back and open up. For the first time, we open up this amulet on Dr. Strange's chest, and it turns out it has an eye inside of it, which is just really creepy visuals, really fascinating visual universe for Dr. Strange. The eye opens, it bathes the man with the gun in light. He is hypnotized. Dr. Strange flees the nightmare dimension, will confront Nightmare another day, comes back, takes the man's gun away, says, I shall relieve you of both your weapon and your hypnotic spell. Now speak and speak only the truth. I command you. It's like, well, if you want to, command someone to speak only the truth. Why did you remove them from their hypnotic spell? That's exactly the purpose of hypnotic spells. <laughs> he says, now speak, speak only the truth. I command you. And then the man says, it's over. You're still alive. That means I've lost. I was a fool to come to you. I didn't suspect my dreams were caused by the many men I'd ruined in business. Krang was the last of them. I robbed him, but he couldn't prove it. Now, now I'll confess. And then Dr. Strange says, it will be the only way you can ever sleep again. So we've got so many wonderful aspects of Dr. Strange that are set up in this first story. Dr. Strange is always one of my favorite characters. I love the moral 
element of Doctor Strange stories, how he is someone who sort of sits in judgment on mankind. Here, you know, the person who has come to him for help, he says, has to confess to a crime or else he'll never be able to sleep again. The Lee Ditko, and, you know, it's very tricky saying Lee Ditko with Doctor Strange. I think Lee loves his book. He tends to script it himself. However, with both Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, Ditko will eventually insist that Ditko himself get full credit for plotting. Lee will continue to get credit for scripting. By the last couple of issues of Doctor Strange, Ditko has forced Lee off the scripting as well. And the last couple of Ditko issues are not scripted by Lee. So this is more Ditko's book than Lee's. But I think Lee does love his book. I think he does have a lot of fun scripting it. But this is Ditko's baby. And it is just gorgeous. And it's amazing how much of it is here in this first issue. Now, clearly, we do not have the origin. We do not have Baron Mordo. We do not know about him being a surgeon. Any of that stuff is not here. But a lot of it is here. And once again, I'll just point you to Dr. Strange's face in the bottom panels on the final page. There is no way you're going to convince me that Dr. Strange isn't supposed to be of Asian descent there. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Um, now, one thing that I also did notice, and sorry, my voice is getting worse as we go on. One thing that I did notice is I'm pretty sure that in future issues, he doesn't have the eye of Agamotto anymore for a while and sort of has to earn it. He has this other sort of little amulet that's a square with a circle inside or something like that. And then he like later has to earn the eye of Agamotto. So when I went back here and read the story again, I'm like, what is he doing with that amulet? He doesn't get that yet. But I guess that maybe they, you know, when they came back to this character, they had done something else with it and then later said, oh, we need to bring that thing back because it just looks so creepy. But we'll, we'll see. I could be I'm wrong on that, but that's my memory. Yeah, I don't remember that. Anyway, I think this is a huge addition to the Marvel Universe, a absolutely gorgeous issue. Dicko at the top of his powers for the first time, even though he's been doing amazing work on Spider-Man. This is where Dicko really lets his freak flag fly, an absolutely gorgeous issue. And we're going to have Dr. Strange this issue. We're going to have him again next issue. And then he is off for two issues. So they seemingly gave him a tryout in issues 110 and 111, and then they sort of give up on the idea, and he's not in issues 112 or 113. And then there must have been some good fan reaction. Maybe Jerry Bales wrote back to Lee and said, uh, no, that story didn't suck, dude. That story was awesome. <laughs> and you should keep going with it. Dr. Strange comes back to say with issue 114, and then he stays on the book until Dicko. Well, he stays the star of Strange Tales until the end of Strange Tales. Tenuous grasp on Marvel at this point. He only gets five pages here, but he knocks it out of the park. Let's move on to the next thing here. And yeah, my, my voice is uh, definitely going here at this point. Would you mind taking the lead for the rest of the episode? Let's just go ahead and do that. Okay. Steve's voice is disappearing due to COVID. I will quickly sum up the last two issues. Tales of Suspense, never has the mighty Iron Man faced so deadly a foe as Kala, queen of the underworld. We have Iron Man facing a warrior queen looking woman. She says, either betray your world, Iron Man, or I will slay your friends. The choice is yours. And he thinks, if I surrender, Earth is doomed. But if I fight her, my friends will die. What can I do? So I guess one thing I like about Tales of Suspense in this period, basically, comic books are all about naked people colored as if they're wearing costumes. Yes. It always drives me crazy when Iron Man goes through his very long period from about 1965 until 2000. Five. <laughs> Even Iron Man just looked like a naked dude colored red and yellow. And he had these rippling muscles. And I like Iron Man who looks like he's wearing metal. That's what I like out of Iron Man. And Iron Man still looks like he's made of metal here, which I like. And this is a Kirby cover. This is Kirby interior. Once again, I falsely said in an earlier episode of the show that Kirby would never do the interior of Iron Man. I'm pretty sure I agreed with you. 
Yes. But now we have Pot Stanley, Script Arburns, Art Jack Kirby, Inking Don Heck. You're a big Heck defender. I think Heck does a gorgeous job on Ant-Man and Wasp this month. And we'll find out in a little bit. As we will find out. But I'm not a big fan of his inking of Kirby in this story. I think we have Kirby doing his usual wonderful job showing our second time this month where we have the hero leading a revolution in an alien world. The heck inking, I feel like, you know, you're not a big fan of Ayers inking. I am a much bigger fan of Ayers inking than you are. I think it is night and day, the difference between Ayers inking a similar story and Fantastic Four this month and heck inking this story. Fair enough to each their own. To each their own. We get in this story, we're having accents at a Stark wind tunnel. They call up Iron Man to go try to solve the problem. He does, and then he comes back as Tony Stark. Then suddenly people start getting sucked into the ground. Tony Stark is sucked into the ground in a crystal of some sort. We have yet another gorgeous Kirby panel of looking down at a futuristic city. He loves drawing that angle as he is then sucked down into a futuristic city at the core of the Earth. Now we get something really interesting here where there's still at this point in the Marvel Universe stuff that doesn't match up with each other. At this point, we're getting a lot of crossovers. We just had Ant-Man show up in Fantastic Four. But we find out the origin of this story at the core of the Earth is that it used to be the city of Atlantis until the right. city of Atlantis was destroyed in a catastrophe and became a domed city and sucked down to the bottom of the ocean and then kept getting sucked down further and further until it was at the center of the Earth. Well, of course, we already have Atlantis in the Marvel Universe. Just so strange to suddenly go like, oh, no, this is you know an incompatible version of Atlantis. In the order in which these things are in Marvel Unlimited, the Fantastic Four annual number one, they say, was published this same month. And, of course, there they go all the way into the history of the other Atlantis and the evolution of the people there and everything else. A little incongruous. Very incongruous. He finds out that, of course, Kala intends to attack the surface world. He finds out that... She has a lieutenant named Baksu, who is not super into the whole thing, which is another recurring theme in these Lee Kirby issues. They say, then, we've brought these other people from the surface world. We will kill them. We want you to create weapons that will now enable us to invade the surface world. Iron Man's like, I know this. This is the first trick I learned. Yep, I'll do it. I'll betray the Earthmen, and you just set me up with the lab, and I'll create the weapons you want. And of course, the Earthmen are horrified, but Iron Man's like, this is the first trick I learned. I'm going to go ahead and tell them I'm going to build them their weapons, and I'm actually going to build myself a suit of Iron Man armor, which he promptly does. But first, he has a conversation with Baksu. He's saying, you don't approve of this Earth invasion, do you, Baksu? And Baksu says, no. First, I'm not sure we can succeed. Who knows what unknown problems we might encounter on the surface? Second, I hate taking orders from a woman. And then Tony Stark says, then why do you? As general of the Netherworld army, you could seize power. Besides, I have a feeling you love Kala despite her arrogance. And Baxu says, aye, but I refuse to knuckle under to any female beautiful as she may be. But we're not here to discuss my problems. Tony Stark builds himself some Iron Man armor, turns into Iron Man, breaks out, tells Baxu, I have no intention of harming you. Instead, we're going to go talk to Kala. He grabs Kala. Awesome panel of Kala attacking him with a huge tank with a giant flame weapon on it. Suddenly... Yeah. Tony Stark has all sorts of weapons here he never uses before or since. He is able to use some crystals to transform the flame chemically into a block of ice. He's able to drop a bunch of mirrors on the floor to create illusions of himself. But then he grabs Kala, flies her to the surface. She becomes an old withered hag when she reaches the surface. By the gods, I'm hideous. I've turned into an old hag. And he says, he's exactly. And the instant your netherworld army hit the surface, they would also age and grow weak as old men. Now do you want to invade Earth? So then he brings her back down and <laughs> insists that she marry Baksu because this is the foundation of a healthy relationship. Marry Baksu and rule wisely. 
Kama will explain to you why any thought of an invasion of Earth is sheer folly. And Baxter says, I thought that long ago. Thank you, Iron Man, for teaching our ruler a well-deserved lesson. Never forget that you'll always be welcome here. So then she sets up to marry Baxu. Now, of course, this will later turn out that Baxu will die and she will try to marry the Mole Man. All sorts of things will happen later in the comics. But for now, it seems like this is going to be the end of this. Tony Stark goes to a society party. They say, there's Tony Stark, New York's biggest wolf. At least his adventure into the Earth kept him away from girls for a while. And he thinks, that's what you think, bub. The end. I'm reminded of the uh, Mad Men pilot a little bit. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, I, I won't have a woman speak to me that way. You know, even they, they grew out of that in that show, too. Well-trod ground here. Well-trod ground. But like I said, I always like starting a revolution on alien planet stories. I think Kirby does a fantastic job with these lost worlds. This feels more like a Fantastic Four story than an Iron Man story. It is a fun story. And yes, it is certainly well-trod ground to have Iron Man claim he's going to create <laughs> weapons for them and create an Iron Man armor instead. But that actually works as a fun little callback. The comic's been going for a year or so now. So they're sort of celebrating their first year by having a little shout out to the first story. I enjoy this issue. I think it's great having Kirby on the book. I think, even though I'm not a big fan of Hex Inks, I think Kala is a fun character who will come back later. And I enjoy this story. Good. Uh, it was fun. I, I think you liked it a little better than I do, but it was fun. So now let's go ahead and get on to Tales to Astonish number 45. <laughs> the Wasp is in a baggie. She says, no, no, Ant-Man, stay back. It's a trap. Don't try to save me. It's no use. Gasp. He can't hear me. Nothing can save us now. More villainous, more deadly than ever. Don't dare miss the return of Egghead. And we've got Egghead now featuring a mustache and goatee, the sign of people, saying, that's it, Ant-Man, you've blundered into my trap, and now when I pull this switch, I'll be rid of you forever. And then we see that... There's an anteater behind the cage. (laughs) We see that he has an anteater in a cage. How have they made it through all the issues they've made it through this book without having Ant-Man face an anteater yet? Well, now it happens. And then we see another little flash forward on the first page. So as I said, so this is once again, Plot Stanley, script H.E. Huntley, who also scripted the Wasp's first appearance last issue wrote the famous line, go to the ants, thou sluggard, which was accidentally go to the ants, thou dullard. Once again, we begin with a little flashback and they do, to their credit, remember that Egghead did not have the mustache and go to you in his first appearance. We have a flashback to his first appearance. Now we cut to him now. He has truly gone to seed and that he has grown facial hair in his flop house where we last saw him. People are complaining about Ant-Man and the Wasp. And he's like, oh, the Ant-Man has a partner who's a woman now, does he? Well, that's going to be his weakness. I'll be able to take him down. Now, actually, it's a it's a shame you can't speak, Steve, because I was hoping you could explain to me what the hell his plan is here, because it is very complicated. He comes up with this extremely complicated plot to separate Ant-Man and the Wasp and trap the Wasp and then lure Ant-Man into a trap. It involves all sorts of elements. But one of the things I like about it, first, they steal a bunch of jewels and then they lay a trap with them. And the two people who are working for him are like... Uh, I think it would have been easier if we just grabbed the ice and it's better you don't try to think ape. Right. Yeah. Because, you no, know, he's here to prove how smart he is to the Ant-Man. He's not here just to steal diamonds. I mean, you know, come on. And then later they end up with, I think, yet more jewels. And they're like, uh, we did it. Now we just got to fence these things and lay low. And he's like, fools, all you can see is what's in front of your eyes. These are merely the bait to catch the wasp and Ant-Man. And they're like, why? We've already achieved our goal of stealing jewels. What does Ant-Man even have to do with this at this point? But they're like, no, 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 no. He's insisting that they use these jewels to catch Wasp and Ant-Man. So then he wars Wasp into some sort of trap. I can't follow the story. She ends up in some sort of maze. But then she, it turns out, has the ability to contact Ant-Man 
Using her antennae, her delicate antennae vibrate tremulously as the message is sent. And he thinks, foolish girl, I've warned her not to tackle jobs alone if any harm comes to her. So then he comes to where she is, falls into the trap exactly as planned. And then you get a really fun page on page 11. Egghead is really just toying with Ant-Man here. Egghead says, I'm going to drop you in a glass case. I'm going to make you fight an iguana. And I'm going to give you a pin to use as a jousting lance to joust with the iguana just because I would like to see that. And indeed, I can't blame Egghead for wanting to see that because it is awesome. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And Egghead's got some goggles on so we can see him. And it makes Egghead's eyes look enormous. So then Ant-Man wins the little joust. He says, I've won Egghead. And Egghead says, not yet. This is only the first round. You're still trapped in that glass case. Ant-Man escapes. But it turns out that was still all part of the plan because now he has to face a giant anteater. There is electrical wires surrounding the room so he can't slip out under the doors. At this point, and again, maybe you could explain this to me if you can summon up your voice, Ant-Man suddenly has a lasso. Like, he's had a lasso for a while now because he's got a lasso in the previous panel too and he lassos the anteater and flings it into the bad guys. Where did he get this lasso from? I do not know. That's a good question. (laughs) It always is annoying to me in stories when the villain is thinking 10 steps ahead and has thought of every possible thing the hero might do. And then the hero wins by doing something that anybody could have figured he would do. (laughs) And it's a little different in that he has a lasso and you might not have figured on that. But then he's like, hey, Wasp, turn off the current around the cracks. And she says, will do, boss man. It's like, well, wait, if that was easily doable, then why create this elaborate trap? So then she flies around with the pin and says, I finally found my sting. The one thing is the wasp that I lack. So of course, later she will get a power to shoot lasers from her hands, which is called her wasp sting. But for now, she's just stinging by flying around with a pin and poking it into people's hands, knocks the gun out of Egghead's hands. Egghead gets away. She defeats the other guys. Hank yells at her, as for you, young lady, don't ever try anything like that again. We're a team and we'll work as a team, understand? And she thinks, oh, Ant-Man, can't you see that I'm a woman and in love with you? How can a man so brilliant be so blind? Well, maybe he's blind or maybe he just says, you are too young for me and my coworker and we should not be together. And indeed, I approve of you from 2021, (laughs) Hank Pym. 2022. Oh, I, I just cursed. I meant to say, oh, shoot. Don't worry, I'll bleep it. We are recording this on January 3rd, 2022. And then we get Egghead planning to one day take care of him. I think heck, inked by other people is often a problem. I think heck, inking other people is often a problem. But I think heck, inking heck is really nice looking in this story. I just find him when he's inking himself charming. One thing that you get with heck that you don't get with anyone else in Marvel Comics. So if you go back and look at page six, the very first panel, the gun mole who is scared of snakes, that look on his face, that is a look that you're not going to get from anybody but heck inking heck. And I and I love it. It's just so different. That's the kind of stuff that I really like. Yeah, I think the wasp looks great in this issue. She looks sexy. She has very attractive figure. I think that if you look at the top of page eight, she sort of has a dancer's figure. She sort of moves like a dancer and makes a good pairing with Ant-Man. I think that they're just a very sleek looking couple. I think Heck at his best sort of feels like a fashion illustrator. And this feels like a fashionable couple. I think this is a very nicely drawn issue. Eventually, you know, Egghead works fine as a continuing villain. I think that what makes the issue work is the fact that Egghead is 
standing in for all of us when he's like, why haven't you fought an anteater? Why haven't you ever had to fight an iguana using a penicing lance? It's time that we saw these things. And he is right. And it is time we saw those things. And it is good to see them. And it justifies the existence of this issue. Well, he is a genius. He is a genius. All right. Poor Steve has COVID. You can hear his voice. I have entirely recovered from my case. I wish you a quick recovery yourself. I think that this month of Marvel Comics did not code itself as glory, except for one very good Fantastic Four story. It was a great Spider-Man story, and it was an even better Doctor Strange story, which yes. is really what makes this month of comics immortal. Absolutely. I, I will concur with that. Okay. Well, yeah, I need to go get some sleep and try to recover from this thing. I'm glad we were able to get this done. Well, I certainly hope you feel better soon. I had just very brief symptoms for a very brief time, and I hope you end up like me. And hey, everybody out there listening to this. Be careful about Omicron, cause, or don't bother because you'll get it anyway. Please at least be vaccinated. Yes, I certainly would like to hope that having my three doses helped my case be mild. And please, all of you, get your shots, get your boosters, and hopefully that will make sure that when you inevitably get this thing that apparently is completely impossible to keep from getting, it will be mild. Well, thank you very much, everybody. We will speak to you again soon. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.